welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is a show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Happiness is something that I've had a keen interest in for a long time. I've enjoyed looking at this topic and experimenting in my own life as to what makes a happy life. I've even created a presentation that I delivered to groups called How to Create Happiness, which I will talk about in an upcoming episode. What I love about my guest today is that he has studied happiness in countries and workplaces using statistics as a guide, which is something that you don't see every day. What does the data tell us about what makes a happy country or happy workplace? And most importantly, how do we create more happiness, satisfaction, and well-being in the world while treading lightly on our beloved planet? Here is a conversation about this very issue. My guest today is Nick Marks, and he was once described as a statistician with a soul due to his unusual combination of hard statistical and soft people skills. He has been working in the field of happiness, well-being, and quality of life for over 25 years with a particular emphasis on measurement and how to create positive change. In 2010, he gave a TED Talk on his work in public policy, which has now been watched over 2 million times. Nick has been applying his creative thinking to the world of work since 2012. He is the founder of Friday Pulse and has worked with over a 1,000 organizations and teams measuring and improving their happiness at work. Here is my interview with Nick Marks. Okay, I am here with Nick Marks. Nick, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Tony. Yeah, yeah. I I thought, oh, I I forgot to ask you, um, I was going to have you kick off with that RFK quote from your TED Talk. Do you have that? Oh, well, so uh, Robert Kennedy very famously said that GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. That's great. And you're speaking in the 60s there about what what we measure nationally. And, and I'm a statistician. I've been very interested in what nations and indeed businesses measure, how they measure it, and, and what that means towards, you know, what direction they go in. That's great. I, I, you know, I first came across you, I I saw your excellent TED talk about your happy planet index, and it really caught my eye. I'm, I'm someone that's interested in well-being and happiness. And I like to be out on the edge, kind of seeing what people are are thinking about and creating. Um, What is the happy planet index? Can you describe it for us? And what, what are the, what's been the takeaway or what's the, what did you learn by working with that? Well, I created it way back in 2006. Well, probably I had the idea in 2005. And I was working then in a think tank in London and about what governments measure and very interested, and I still am, in sort of sustainability and climate change. Mm -hmm. But there's a logic in environmentalists, which can be quite anti-human. You know, it's like, I mean, not all of them, but, you know, sort of like, you know, humans are bad and we're, we're destroying the planet and Actually, we're not destroying the planet. We're changing the planet. We're making it less suitable for us to, to uh, for our habitat. Uh, and we're getting rid of lots of other species, which is not great at all, but, but we're not destroying the planet. But, and I wanted to create something which valued human life and valued the environment. So it came up with the Happy Planet Index, which basically is it's very simple. It says, how, uh, how good are nations at creating good lives for their citizens? And how much of the Earth's resources does that use? So that's the happy and that's the planet. And, and basically it measures how happy citizens are, how long they live. So it's like happy, long lives. Mm. And then it divides it by what's called ecological footprint, which is basically a measure of the sort of gross pressure on the planet that we put. 
and and that's and that's all it is. So and it re ranks nations in the nations like the US and and the UK have pretty good levels of well being internationally, but they have high ecological footprints. Whereas and some nations like Sub-Saharan Africa have really low levels of well-being and low footprints. So they're not any good any either. Mm-hmm. And what you really want are the ones that are doing good job on well-being and good job on the planet. And there aren't many cases of those, but places like Costa Rica, Vietnam, they they have pretty good life expectancy, pretty good happiness, and much lower footprint than say the US and the UK. What you know, I know here, you know, I if you were to ask me this and not tell me any of the data and say, you know, we, in the U S we obviously use a lot of resources. Um, and I would say, well, we're, we're kind of happy, you know, I put us in the top third, but one of the things I see around what Americans do, and I I don't know if this is true over in the UK, but we chase happiness, meaning we buy a lot of stuff. We travel a lot, which uses resources. It's like, we're always going to the next thing, hoping to find happiness. And my sense some with some of these other countries that you mentioned, Costa Rica and stuff, I, I don't know if there's as much chasing, uh, chasing happiness. Would you say that's true? Or uh, what did you find with, with the other countries that did not use up as much resources? Um, well, in, in many ways, sort of happiness and resource use are relatively independent, which is actually quite good. It means that you mm. can use less and still be happy. And there definitely are different styles. So, you know, the US is almost certainly more materialistic in the way it thinks about how it can can get happiness than than some other countries. Um, and Latin America is predominantly more relational in mm. how they think about happiness rather than uh, transactional or material. So um, there definitely are differences like that. And But actually the nations that come out happiest actually tend to be the countries that are more uh, equal. So Scandinavia, Switzerland, uh, actually even Costa Rica is a good example of within a context which has got a lot of income inequality, they're more equal than s- several of their neighbors and, and a lot of Latin America. So um, actually equality becomes important. And part of the reason is that what drags the US average down on happiness is, is how unhappy their poor are, uh, your poor are. And, and it's the same in the UK, you know, we're not a very equal country. And that drags down the mean, whereas in, in Scandinavia, the poor are much uh, less poor and they're, and they're less unhappy. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it does happy, would you say happiness brings, or success brings happiness or happiness brings success? What, do, what has been your findings? So actually, I can give you a pretty strong statistical answer to this. I'm a statistician. And um, success does lead to happiness. Yeah. But the relationship from happiness to success is twice as strong. Uh-huh. I, 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 they're both true, but the happiness, the happiness to success is stronger. And I know that from data on, on teams and organizations where you're looking at their happiness at time one and their financial performance at time one and the same at time two, so six to 12 months later. Mm. And they, there are what we call correlation coefficients uh, and, and you do fancy stuff like, you know, hold for other statistical events and you find out that both of them exist, but that this uh, happiness means success is twice as strong. So it's quite a neat result because it doesn't trash what most people think happens because it's true, but it's just the other one's bigger. Got it. Got it. Um, during this during this pandemic, it's interesting right now because I'm seeing a lot of unhappiness. Um, and then there's also people that are taking this downtime, the people that are staying at home and stuff, I'm seeing people doing, uh, taking better care of themselves. There's a, there's a component of self-care, I think, that's been accentuated by, by the lockdown. But it seems to be a particularly challenging time right now 
to be looking at happiness, like what's going to make us happy. I think a lot of people are just waiting to see what's going to happen. Like, am I going to be able to be happy if everybody has to wear a mask? And I think um, for me, it's difficult to imagine a path to like being ecstatically happy when I can't see people's faces. I can't see them smile. I can't see their body. You know, I can't read their face. I can't even really see what they look like. Um, and so what, what are we going to do with this? It's, 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 it's probably the same in the UK. It's, we're trying to manage a global pandemic, which is, we've never done in our lifetime, but also inside of this notion of happiness, you know, I think a lot of people might be just throwing out the idea that happiness is an option. Like everybody's just kind of in survival mode. I, I don't know what your take is over there or what your thoughts are of happiness within COVID-19 right now. So I think the first thing is that there is a lot of variability. There's a lot of variety of experience going on out there. Yeah. And the second thing is that, you know, we're now, you know, beginning of August 2020 and, 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 the, and the first wave of it is over. I mean, March was really scary. I don't know how you felt, but, you know, and, they, and actually in the UK, the government um, measures well-being um, annually or six monthly, but they actually moved to moving it weekly. And anxiety levels were super high in March. I um, mean, the UK typically... 20, 25% of people say they were, were anxious yesterday. And that rose to 45%, 50% in those first few weeks. And it's dropped since then. So there was a peak to the anxiety. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, we all scrambled around those first weeks of lockdown, not, you know, or before lockdown actually was probably even more scary. There was some way in the lockdown, I think, gave people a sort of sense of security that we were doing something about it. This is the UK. I can't speak about the US. It was the same here. I think the, the sentiments were exactly the same. At least we're doing this. This feels this feels safe. Um, yeah. let's, let's see what happens. We don't know what's going on exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, so it was sort of congruent with what we were feeling and they felt like there was a you know a solution that we could we could embrace and then then there's the variability of experience which is that you know I'm I'm 56 I I I have some step teen children as uh, teenage children but you know they were half here half with their dad and you know and and we're fine we we we're, we're relatively wealthy in a society in the sense you know we got we we got secure money secure work mm-hmm. Even members of my team that had young children at home, so they suddenly lost their childcare. The kids weren't at school. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of them trying to work from home immediately. You know, for me, it was quite easy to move from work from home. But, you know, they suddenly, just chaos, total stress, absolutely up the wall, yeah? And then you've got the people living in small apartments. You've got the people without the financial security, the ones that were made unemployed, the ones that feared they were going to be made unemployed, the ones that weren't in good relationships. You know, we've definitely seen an increase in things like domestic violence and abuse and things like that. So, you know, there's just so much stress, but it's fallen very unevenly. Yes. And um, and so it's very hard to say there's one thing. I mean, I, I can track the data and I can show you that, Yes, people are more anxious those first weeks. Yes, they're less anxious now. I can show you actually in happiness at work, which we track weekly with our clients. I can tell you that all of our clients, middle March, had an absolute crash in the happiness at work. And they've had resilience and come back again. But yeah. within those averages, there's just such a variety around it. And some people have really, really struggled and it's been the worst time I've Others have had this sort of beautiful experience of being at home and introverts, you know, probably really suited them. They've sat at home, they've totally. meditated, they've whatever, you know, and there's some people who will really miss it. <laughs> so it's, a, it's difficult. 
That's a good point, Nick. I, 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 it's funny. I, I interviewed a yoga teacher, meditation teacher, Sally Kempton, earlier in the season, and it was right at the beginning of lockdown. And it was funny talking to her because she's like, "Yeah, nothing's really changed for me. I'm still doing meditation and yoga all the time." Like, and, yeah. um, and so for her. But I think the point that you made, um, I'm really struck by my good friends who don't have families. You know, they live by themselves. Um, those are the ones that it, it's like it's three times as challenging. I have my family here, um, but the people that live by themselves, that's a particularly challenging uh, uh, set of circumstances. And so it's like, how do we how do we check in with them more frequently? I mean, I lead men's groups online and it's like, so I'm able to listen to what's happening with some of the men who are um, living solo. And it's a, quite a different experience than having other people in your house. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I'm relatively social. So the fact that, you know, I live with my wife and I like my wife, you know, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, um, uh, is, is, is a, is a huge, but I would even say that us, you know, and we, we've only actually been married three, four years since the second marriage. And, and, and so we're still in that quite love phase in a sense, you know, I that's hope great. we remain forever in it, but you know, even us, we've, you know, you start to think, you know, well, you know, normally I used to go to London for two or three nights a week, you know, and we'd have a bit apart, a bit together. Yeah. And now we get together all the time. You bit like you do start to just slightly rub each other, you know, and and I think that's something you have to manage. It's much better to be with somebody than not. It, it, but you know, but even being together with someone is difficult sometimes. And 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 the loneliness, you know, I've got two of my team who are women who who mid thirties, single live in flats on their own in London, which they normally think is great. You know, they go out, they see, you know, they've been in a prison alone. Right. right, right. I think that's, you know, that's, that's, it's it's just, it's a huge variability of of what's going on for people. Well, in, in your, in your excellent Ted talk, um, you mentioned five things that you can do every day to be happier. This might be a good time to touch on that because I think people are looking for little tips and what can I do um, to increase my levels of happiness right now? Yeah, so we call them the five ways to well-being, five ways to happiness, and and um, they were done for a UK government project. And, and in the UK, I, I don't know if you have this public health messaging that you should eat five fruit and vegetables a day. I think you do have that in the US. We have that, yep, yep. So five is already a healthy number. So we deliberately did five, not because it's like there's only five things you can do, but it it's resonates with people. It's a public health message, but a mental health message. Yeah. And the five things were uh, connect, which is relationships are, are the most important thing. So, you know, obviously we've had to socially distantly connect now, but it's still connect. People have done that in all sorts of ways. The second is to be active. We saw a huge boon on sort of online training, people really trying to do physical activity. Of course, quite a lot of us, certainly me, did it for the first few weeks and then didn't do quite as much as we should have done after a while, but, you know, yeah. be active. But it is the fastest way out of a bad mood. If you're in a bad mood, get up, walk, run, yeah. Uh, dance, you know, whatever it is, uh, moving is great for you. So connect, be active. The third one is take notice. So this was messaged back in 2008. We might have said be mindful now. Mm-hmm. I still prefer take notice because take notice has this possibility of being sort of connected outwards as well as inwards. You know, you're, you're noticing what's going on around you. So, you know, it landed with Northern Hemisphere, it landed in March and spring still came. And actually was a quite a relief, I think, for a lot of people that, you know, the flowers came out, the leaves came out, you know, the world didn't stop. It just, something different was happening. So, you know, taking notice, but it's also noticing what's going on within you, which, you know, you all know very well with uh, both yourself and with your clients that if we can take notice of those little 
um, energies within us and we can look at them, expand them, think about them. And actually, they really help us find what's meaningful to us in life. Yep. Uh, and what, you know, so that's really what Take Notice is about. Um, the fourth one is called Keep Learning. Uh, we put the keep in there to remind people it's throughout the life course. Doesn't have to be formal learning. In fact, some formal learnings are not very good for well-being. But you know, but it's more about you know novelty, seek challenge, seeking new things. Mm-hmm. And the fifth one is give. Mm. And you know, rather beautifully, give is when we give. It's good for us as well as for the receiver. And uh, and and we feel good when we help others. And and you know, so. Those what the five things are. So they connect, be active, take notice, keep learning, give, and it's sort of how do we build them into the fabric of our lives? And and in, in a, it, there is a way that this still requires a sense of agency in life that we that we feel able to make good, strong decisions. And some people get themselves into such a, um, a restricted mode of life that they don't even feel the agency to get up off a sofa. You know, if you you've known yeah. people or who've got severe depression or something like that. And I'm not sure the five ways quite help there, but I think if you've got some sense of agency in your life or something, then thinking about how you can do those things and maybe doing a little sort of inventory about how well you do those things in your life and thinking about the ones that you do less well and doing more of them. Uh, and also noticing the ones that your strengths and what you play to. I mean, I, I know my weaknesses be active. It's not my, but I, but I walk. And actually my take notice is my walk. It's, it's a way of me thinking reflecting on my life you know I actually prefer to walk alone than with other people normally so it's not a connect thing for me it normally tends to be a a, a sort of a sort of walking meditation for me um, that's great you know so so there are different ways people can do stuff that's great we before we we started recording you and I were just getting to know each other a little bit and I, I didn't know that you had done you know men's men's work when I say that I mean you know work done around your masculinity what it means to be a man uh, trying to find your place in the male tribe and we you and I were both just saying like when we were younger uh, you know there wasn't there wasn't a lot of signposts there wasn't you just kind of you know you, you got at a certain age you went to college or, or to work uh, and there was this kind of dot, 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 like what, you know, am I a man at what age, you know, there was no like rite of passage to bring you in. And I've spoken about this a lot on this show. Uh, but I just thought, you know, I, I would give you a chance to reflect on, you know, how you've arrived where you're at as a man and, uh, what you learn from, you know, asking these questions about, you know, who am I as a man? What, what's going on with the narrative around men? Um, you talked about possibly starting a podcast, which I think is an excellent idea. There needs to be more uh, conversations around healthy masculinity and, and, and what men are up to right now. Yeah, I think, as I said, I'm, I'm born 1964. So I was a child of the 70s, really. And, uh, and then went into sort of college in, in the 80s. It would, you know, like lots of people, not making many decisions for myself until I found myself at college. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I didn't know how to be a man. I had three elder sisters. Mm. Um, but I was sent in the terrible British tradition of, to boarding school. Yeah. Uh, which is what wealthy Brits do for their family. If you if you're taken into into care as a child, it's called it's called a tragedy. If you're sent to boarding, <laughs> it's called a privilege. And uh, <laughs> and the environments are not very dissimilar. Right, and, right. Uh, you know, um, and I and so there, you know there was there was bullying. There was sort of you know there was sort of some sort of sexual abuse, not with me at all ever, but it was around. You yeah. know, there were older boys that 
did stuff to you. You sort of knew about it. And, and, and it, it, we, I wasn't in a terrible school where, you know, there were, there were Catholic priests doing terrible things, but you know, it was in the, in the, in the atmosphere yeah. and, 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 and how you become a, a man in a misogynist world. It took me a long time to own being a man. I think I was quite, I'm more comfortable being a boy you know, mm-hmm. with potential. And, uh, but when you sort of, a man feels like you're here and you have to sort of stand on the ground and, you know, and, and you know, and I, I found that very hard to know what my model for that was. And so in my 20s, I, I did a couple of things. I trained as a therapist, actually, and I started going to a lot. Of, well, firstly, I went to a lot of encounter groups and then I decided to train as a therapist. But, and I came across, um, there was a guy in London called, um, what, what was the name of that famous um, actor, Olivier? Um, Lawrence Olivier. Lawrence Olivier, that's yeah. it. Yep. Richard Olivier was his grandson, and mm. he was running men's groups as a sort of theatre experience in London. And I went to one or two of those, and then you started finding out that people like Robert Bly, mm. James Hillman, Michael Mead, um, must have been some other names I can't remember, were coming and running men's groups. And so I just signed up for them and went on these things. And, you know, you were allowed to hit drums, and you were allowed to cry. You were allowed to be vulnerable as a man. You were allowed to talk about, you know, how you were having bad sex and your sex wasn't like it was supposed to be in the movies or, you right, know, and right. you had a yeah. pee, you know. <laughs> and, and, um, and I found it very releasing to find that there were other men who, who were not, um, you know, were not sort of just into sports. And I, I don't mind sports, I quite like going, but I'm not, that's not my big thing. And, and they weren't misogynist and they didn't have to put down women and they didn't, you know, and it was like, how, how do you do that? And so I found it very... Yeah useful um in how i became you know and i'm quite a tactile loving um compassionate human being um and i'm i'm able to do that and be a man that's absolutely absolutely yeah i remember when i started in the mankind project uh you know i went through their weekend training and then you know was involved you know heavily involved in their group work and stuff and just the mentors that the men that were leaders of that organization they they were just such heroes of mine because they they lived in their hearts they weren't afraid of emotions but they weren't wimpy men they were very powerful in how they carried themselves and they were all you know in their hearts and in their mission um and they were just kind of badasses like it was you know we we were so conditioned in the states and it sounds like there too you know the the tough guy uh you know that just overcame obstacles well they they sort of inverted that and said, you know, you want to be resilient and you want to own your power, but not, not by walling yourself off from other men and certainly not by closing off your heart and certainly not by repressing any feelings that are going on. And so I saw these men that were fluid in how they communicated their inner lives. But then when you, you know, when you watch their body language and how they moved and how they moved in and out of the, you know, in the world, they, they, they had a lot of inner power. You could see that people took instant respect when they were in a lot of different circumstances, the way they carried themselves. So I was attracted to that, like the, the owning their own masculine power and authenticity and what that meant and how they could just speak their truth in any circumstances was super attractive to me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting, and when you meet someone like that, it's, Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of a live wisdom, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I sometimes um, talk on emotional intelligence. I'm sure you do too. Yeah. And, and, and actually, I think the words are the wrong way around. And I think we should be thinking about intelligent emotionality. Mm. 
and 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 the reason for that is actually something strictly biological and and, and sort of neuroscience, which is that emotion comes first. And so our emotionality is there and it's how do we intelligently engage with it? I mean, this is what, you know, um, some psychologists would call self-regulation or, um, you know, um, spiritual people would talk about, you know, um, the, um, what, what is this? Victor Frankl, Victor Frankl. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. That the, you know, that the, the moment between stimulus and response is our growth. Mm. And, and, and there's a way that our emotions are sort of a stimulus and then, you know, our response is how we do intelligent engage with it. And so I think that, you know, men and women indeed, who, are, who I would consider are sort of, as Barry Swartz would call it, common wisdom, you know, is that they, they have a depth of emotional experience that they're able to access in real time, but they're able to apply their intelligence to it to decide how to act upon that information. You know, and there are times in life to be angry. Uh, and there are times to notice I'm angry and take a different course of action because I don't want to act that out now. There are times when, you know, and there are times, you know, to to to, to be um, uh, lustful and loving, but there are times when to notice that and not do it. And so that, and it's that, it's that ability to do that intelligently in the moment, which I think it creates people that I admire and creates someone that I seek to aspire to be. Yeah. And so, um, and of course, we don't do it perfectly all of the time, but that's that's what I seek to do as a man is to is to be in touch with my emotions, whether they're negative or positive emotions, whether they're you know ones I'm comfortable with or not, and and to become more comfortable with them and know them and and to act on them. Uh, they you, you know they they are my essence of who I am. Absolutely, yeah. I was I was I think there's also with men, we have to help build the language of the inner life because we're not cultured that way. I was on a radio show a few weeks ago and um, the host, um, she was talking about, you know, getting men more vulnerable and vulnerable. And I, when she asked me a question about it and I said, well, we don't use vulnerable in the men's movement. It just, it's, it doesn't work for us. I go, we use authentic because that's got power. That's got a masculine essence that says, this is a man who's real, who's speaking his emotional truth, his inner truth, and is comfortable in his skin. I go, that's, that's what we're talking about. It is being vulnerable, but I think when you, langu- when you language things the way sometimes we have in therapy or, or how um, women may, might language uh, emotional intelligence, I think men can be like, eh, that's not really accessible to me, or I don't, I don't want to be vulnerable authentic, all of a sudden men will be like, wait a minute, I, I'm interested in being real. I'm interested yeah. in being comfortable in my skin and be able to speak my, my inner truth and have it and be able to be, um, you know, uh, 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 versed in that language. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really agree. And I, I think language is hugely important. And, um, and the way that we, I sometimes talk about it, how do you package an idea? Yeah. It's very important. How do you message it? What are the mediums you use to do it? And so, you know, I like that vulnerability, authentic. I think that's right. I, I, I said to you in the before we started, I've got a friend in London and he, he runs a men's group or mental health group and he calls it mixed mental arts yeah. instead of mixed I martial love it. arts. I love and, it. you know, and, and, it, and, it, and he's, he's trying to get language that men can feel comfortable talking about. So I think men sometimes will talk about stress rather than depression, for example. Absolutely. You know, uh, and, and I think there are ways that we should do that. And, and we really... Uh, it's not the label, the word we're trying to do. We're trying to help people lead better lives in, in whatever way they are. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great idea. 
Well, Nick, thanks so much for coming on. Um, is there any creative projects that you, you have coming up you'd like our listeners to know about? This will be airing in, in the coming weeks, probably by the end of August. Um, is there anything you got coming in the fall that you might want our listeners to know about? Yeah, so I'm a statistician. I, I measure people's experience. And I used to do it with governments about measuring populations. And now I do it with organizations. And and we, I, I created something called Friday Pulse, which is basically asking people each week, uh, how happy are you at work? And basically helping people understand you know, what makes for their happiness at work. And we, 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 we offer that to organizations, actually we offer them free for them to try for three months and then they can see if they want to buy it. And um, so that's available there. But what we're releasing uh, probably late September is a personal checkup for your happiness at work. And you'll be able to go in and answer it and it'll give you clues on how to be happier at work. And that's supposed to be a bit of fun and, and give you something of value. So, so we'll be releasing that and um, I'll maybe send you a link uh, for, for your groups uh, you know, when, when it becomes live. But if you watch out for that on fridaypies.com, it will be there. Um, so that, that's what I'm doing at the moment. I create things which have got to try and open up this emotional space, but use statistics to get in there, which might sound weird, but that's my little, that's my little niche. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Nick, thanks so much for coming on Basecamp for Men. Um, and thank you for all the work you've done uh, on behalf of humanity on, in the areas of happiness and happiness at work. Um, I see it making a big difference. So thank you so much. And thanks for sharing your insights and your wisdom today. Appreciate it. No, and thank you, Tony, for what you do at Basecamp. I was really pleased uh, to be asked. Thank you. You bet. I hope you enjoyed our time with Nick Marks. I loved his emphasis on happiness while being mindful of our ecological footprint. Looking at how countries like Costa Rica and Vietnam are doing it might provide us with some interesting insights. And I agree with Nick when he says that we're not ruining the planet. We're changing it and making it less hospitable for us and other species, true. But I think there's wisdom in this approach. Not because we don't bear responsibility, we do but because if we see ourselves as some toxic element that is polluting and killing off our planet, how can we create out of this? There's just too much guilt and shame and helplessness. And it is very unlikely that we will come up with creative solutions to our complex problems with that as our context. If you have an organization and are interested in Nick's work on happiness in the workplace, go check out Friday Pulse at www.fridaypulse.com. Also, if you have someone that you think would be a great guest on this show, please let me know at Tony at BasecampForMen.com. Our listeners have always helped source some of our content and our guests since the very beginning of our show. So go ahead and send in your suggestions. And thank you very much, listeners. That's our show for today. Men, remember that the story of your life is not yet all told. I'm Tony Rezac, and thank you for listening to Basecamp for Men. 